Blog Talk Radio. Hi, and welcome to The Art of Film Funding. I'm your co-host, Claire Papan, along with Carol Dean, author of the best-selling book, The Art of Film Funding. Carol is also the founder and president of From the Heart Productions and the host of this show. Don Schwartz is an actor and journalist. His book, Telling Their Own Stories, Conversations with Documentary Filmmakers, is available from Amazon. His film reviews are posted almost daily, and his filmmaker profiles appear regularly on FromTheHeartProductions.com. Don holds B.A., M.A., Ph.D. degrees in psychology and counseling. And today, five incredible documentaries are covered by Don and by Carol Dean, the producer of this show. We have a special guest speaker today, and that is Alexis Krosilowski, who has produced and directed both Women Behind the Camera, a two-disc set, and Let Them Eat Cake. We will review Alexis' two films at the end of the show and start with Connected, This Ain't No Mouse Music, and Cowspiracy. And Carol, what's the first film? Well, I want Don Schwartz to start with Connected. Okay, thank you, Carol. Uh, The name of this film, of course, is Connected, and the subtitle is an autoblogography about love, death, and technology. It's directed by Tiffany Schlein, and this is very much her film. But I want to introduce Tiffany. Uh, she's, she co-founded the Academy of Digital Arts and Sciences. She founded the Webby Awards, and uh, she calls her umbrella organization the Moxie Institute. And her film Connected, I think, is at, at this point in time her magnum opus as a filmmaker. It premiered at Sundance in 2011, and it's distributed by... Uh, the Moxie Institute, and I'll give you the website at the end of the review. And it was selected by the United States Department to be, excuse me, United States State Department to be part of the 2012 American Film Showcase. And as the first film to launch that showcase, so the film was screened in Cape Town, South Africa, and in Moscow. The script was also selected as part of the core collection at the Library of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences in Beverly Hills, and to state the obvious, it won a lot of awards. The film is narrated by Tiffany and by Peter Coyote. Tiffany's, uh, the, the film is, uh, covers Tiffany's worldview, her view of our world, but it also tells a personal story about her father. Her father is Leonard Schlein, and he is a celebrated uh, author and uh, a surgeon. And he had a profound effect on her life and thinking, and that shows in in the film. And in addition to telling that story, she tells the story of the world. She gives you her worldview all in 80 short minutes. And the, the, the film explores, as the title says, our connections with each other and connections between events. One of, one of the ways that she she talks about that connection between events is demonstrating how one thing can have an incredible impact be beyond itself. So, for instance, in World War I was started by one assassination, and it ended up uh, killing 15 million people. Or another example is in 1958, Chairman Mao uh, wanted to improve agriculture, so he had all the sparrows killed. He had the nest destroyed. That led to an improved harvest to begin with, but without the sparrows, the locust population exploded, and that led to a chain reaction that led to the destruction of China's food food supply, and 36 million people died. So it's it's all about how one little thing can is connect can be connected to everything. Uh, Tiffany takes a very positive view of the internet, but but she also. Uh, uh, she also uh, feels that there's a need to to disconnect. So she and her family have something called Shabbat Friday where all their devices are disconnected. Uh, and I want to emphasize that in, dis- in addition to being 
uh, rich in information and concepts and thoughts. Uh, Connected is also a deeply touching story about her father and daughter. And I have to confess, I've seen the film ten times. And the film touches my heart. So because of that relationship, beautiful, positive relationship between father and daughter. And you can find the the movie at moxieinstitute.org, M-O-X-I-E institute.org. So obviously, Carol, you can see I, I, I just would, I love this movie. And what do you think? Oh, it's fabulous. I totally agree with you. And she started it off with a comment by John Muir, who said, when you target a single thing in the universe, you find it's attached to everything else. So Connected is a film that deals with this issue on all levels, personal, universal, scientific, and environmentally. And early in the film, our fearless creator, Tiffany, introduces us to her superfather, Leonard Schleyland, who is a brain surgeon and an author. And in his book, Alphabet vs. Goddess, he points out how literacy changed the way humans think. And he proposes that when the alphabet was introduced to society, it was overstimulating to the left hemisphere of the brain. And he builds on the theory that the left part of the brain is associated with reading and writing and also with masculine traits, where the right hemisphere is used to see images and patterns and is more feminine. Accordingly, Shalane proposes that the advent of literacy shifted the balance of power towards the left brain and men began to control and rule countries. Therefore, as literacy was introduced into society, a new patriarchal society emerged, and he traced this throughout history. Tiffany, now using this as a theory, has added her thoughts, and that that this may be why we think of world problems in an isolated way, which I believe is a very unique concept. Don't you agree, Don? Absolutely. She's really a bright light in our universe, and she her documentaries are su- superb. But while making this film, Tiffany's beloved father was diagnosed with stage 3 cancer. Well, that was a shocking blow to her because he was the center of her universe, So her intent was to make this film with him, and here he was dealing with a left-brain tumor. So to borrow a a phrase from the opera, Pagliacci, I think a store of memories was nesting in her heart. And this film helped Tiffany share these memories with us in a memorable and enlightening way. I was totally engaged in this film. Tiffany and her collaborative cohorts used visuals in a commanding right-brain way, so much so that I think I got most of my information about the issue by visual imprinting. I was truly overcome by information through images watching this film, which is a wonderful way to receive information. Did lots of those images stay with you, Don? Yes. uh, Carol, I want to follow up on what you just said. Because this this film is a tricky movie. Uh, She's talking about left brain and right brain, and she's talking about uh, the Internet, and she's talking about balancing the left brain and the right brain. And the Internet is something that balances images and text and ideas and words. So I think the idea here is not only individually do we need to balance our left brain and right brain approach to life, uh, that the Internet is is creating a global balancing effect on on the humanity's left brain and right brain by virtue of that combination of uh, words, text, and images. Absolutely right. And uh, um, I took classes on left brain, right brain, and took tests on it years ago. And what I learned was that the right brain people are those who have these brilliant ideas but they don't have the left brain to get them done. So that's why they need a partner who will do that for them, where the left brain people are really good at the action items. And when you get to the filmmaking world, you have to have both. You have to be able to run the camera, know the technical side, and use the right brain for your images and your 
uh, access to the field to get the forward-thinking visuals that you need for your film. So I think that we're dealing with a group of people in filmmaking that are efficiently using both sides of the brain. But anyway, I will say I highly recommend this film, and even if you're not a lover of documentaries, you'll find this film visually engaging, highly enlightening, and delightfully entertaining. There's a lot of emotion in this film, and it is superbly delivered. So thank you very much, Don, for sharing uh, your copy of Ain't No Mouse Music Here. I couldn't imagine what that film was all about, and I'm so anxious to hear your review. Oh, this is a totally fun film. Uh, the subtitle of this Ain't No Mouse Music is the story of Chris Strachwitz, excuse me, Strachwitz, and our Huli Records. And the film is produced by Maureen Gosling and Chris Simon, and it's distributed by their company, Sage Blossom Productions. And you can get the film from the website, which is nomousemusic.com. Uh, Chris Strachwitz was born in Germany in 1931. He immigrated with his family to the United States in 1947, and he discovered a love of American roots music, and founded the now legendary Arhuli Records in 1960 in Berkeley, California. And, and this film tells that story in an outline form, of course, because the film is mostly about what happened after he discovered uh, American roots music. And Chris discovered a passion that he acted on, and he traveled the nation recording artists in their homes, in small venues, wherever they could. His rule was no studio. He did not record artists in studios. And he ended up saving and curating and sharing uh, a measurable amount of American roots music of all kinds of genres, blues, Cajun, Norteño, excuse my pronunciation, Norteño, Tex-Mex, Hillbilly, New Orleans, R&B, Gospel, uh, Klezmer, and those are not all the genres he's dealt with. And the man did everything from finding the artists, uh, being a detective, to engineering, recording, uh, to producing the record. Uh, he did everything from except maybe manufacture the vinyl. He, he, uh, he sold it. He, pack, he would package it, ship it himself. And out of that grew our Huli Records. And, uh, and it's just a totally fun film. And and one of the one of the statements that Chris made about his work over the decades was he he wasn't aware that he was was doing any kind of a cultural preservation he wasn't attempting to be noble uh, he the way he put it, it for him discovering American roots music was like going to paradise without having to suffer death and uh, obviously you get plenty. Of, of music in this film, and that's one of the reasons it's so enjoyable. Uh, but also, the filmmakers, uh, 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 the filmmakers also released a soundtrack, a CD soundtrack of the film, which I recommend you get both. Oh, that's and a I great would... idea. Hello. Yeah, I think that's a great idea. I didn't realize that you could get the soundtrack. I like that. Oh yes, yes. Uh, yeah, I had. I heard some stack. I thought I lost you. So, again, I want to emphasize nomousemusic.com for the film and the CD soundtrack, and also the film is on Netflix and iTunes. And for our, for our Australia listeners, uh, you can get the film from Antidote Films in Australia. And Carol? Well, that's, yeah, that's brilliant. Thank you so much. I, I love this story, the story of a, of a young guy at 16 years old who left Germany, came to the United States, played his radio every day, and he was so impressed with the music in America. And we all took it for granted. He thought it was superb because he knew how to discern talented people. And he wanted to record them and save the music because he thought a lot of the people were older and, they, and that music would die with them. And he was right. So he started on a shoestring and he began to record music exactly where he found it. Front yards, restaurants, bars, by the lake. Wherever musicians were, that's where Chris was. He never had a studio. He never wanted one. He wanted to record the music. 
just where it was a natural feeling. And this brilliant idea really worked because music was a lifeblood in the heart of these deep-rooted communities. They loved their music and their musicians. So this Arhuli label, that means uh, the field hand in the South. Arhuli is a field hand. So he became the field hand for the uh, music. Chris became the folk, blues, and soul music detective. He combed mostly Texas, Louisiana, Mississippi, looking for musicians and for local records to find the musicians. He brought us Mac Mac McCormick, a folklorist, and Mac became a brilliant partner to help Chris find even more musicians. And Chris and Mac were not afraid to ask anyone for the names of musicians that they loved. They would quiz everybody, and once they had a name, they used their detective skills and went to work to find them. And this desire to find folk music in the South would cause him to find some of the greats. He found Fred McDowell, Aka White, Big Mama Thornton. She sang Hound Dog and I Smell a Rat. And he found Richard Thompson, John Jackson, Manis Lipscomb, Charlie Musselwhite, Big Joe Williams, and one of his best sellers is Big Mama in Europe. And he took many of these people to the folk festival and either recorded or created or restructured their careers. Some of them had gone down in popularity, and he resurrected their careers. And he recorded Country Joe and the Fish doing their first song, I Feel Like I Am Fixing to Die, Rag. It was an anti-Vietnamese song. And he recorded it in his home for them, and as they were leaving... Um, he asked them, do, do I owe you any money, Chris? And he said, no, but you don't have a publisher, so let me be the publisher. And they said, okay, and they signed a contract. And that brought Chris a lot of money. And he put it right back into recording people out in the fields. And years later when they met, Chris, Chris gave the publishing rights back to Joe. And I think that's a wonderful thing to do. He is a one-man band, just like you said, Don. He finds the talent, he produces it, he records it, he edits, he markets, he sells, and he promotes it. Uh, He even shows you how to wash records, and I never knew you could do that. But his songs show us that they truly were songs. The songs were the poetry of the people in those days, and thank heavens he came along and saved all that for us. So one of the reasons Don and I do Dissecting Docs is because this show is dedicated to our most precious and beloved filmmakers, the documentary and independent filmmaker. And we're here to honor these brilliant creatives who give their time, energy, and sometimes their freedom to bring us the truth. We think they are our last vestige of sincere, unbiased reporters who give up their time, their creativity, and they put their hearts into their films. Now, there's a film that I found that I have to share with you, Don. The title is what got me. Cowspiracy by Kip Anderson, First Spark Films and Appian Way. A new cut of Cowspiracy, The Sustainable Secret, uh, executive produced by Leonardo DiCaprio, Jennifer Davison, and Appian Way Productions was exclusively released on Netflix on September the 15th, 2015. This film is one of my top three films on environmental issues made in 2015, and so far it's my all-time favorite in bringing to light a little-known problem that can have a major bearing on our water and our environment. It starts off with Kip Anderson. He is a concerned citizen who takes the current environmental issue to heart. And when he saw Gore's film, An Inconvenient Truth, Kip began recycling, riding his bicycle locally to save on car emissions, and donating to all the major environmental organizations. And then he found something online about the amount of emissions caused by animal agriculture. And he was astonished. He found that animal agriculture is responsible for 18% of the greenhouse gas emissions. 
more than the combined exhaust from all transportation. So he said, wait a minute, this is this true? Yes, transportation exhaust is responsible for 13% of all gas emissions. So Kip, realizing that he may be fighting windmills with his small contribution to global warming, began calling some of the major environmental organizations and asking them about the contribution of animal agriculture to our current environmental problems. And he was stonewalled. They would not discuss it, or they would answer with something like, um, this is not what we focus on. And so he said, wow, this is unbelievable because in the film it tells us that we're rapidly approaching two degrees increase in our climate. And scientists say that we will easily exceed two degrees. So Kip found that we're not seeing the greatest extension. We are now seeing the greatest extension of life on the planet since the time of the dinosaurs. And this two-degree increase in temperature will cause drought, famine, species extinction, fires, even land wars as countries are flooded by water from melting ice and suffering from drought and barren land, where populations will war against neighbors for productive land for food. He also tells us in his film that livestock and their byproducts account for at least 32 million tons of carbon dioxide, or 51% of all world greenhouse gas. And agriculture is responsible for 80 to 90% of water consumption. Growing feed crops for livestock consumes 56% of water in the United States. Now, when you look at it this way, 5% of water consumed in the United States is by private homes. 55% of water consumed in the U.S. is for animal agriculture. These are shocking statistics. So here we all are worried about a dripping water faucet when we should be looking at a much bigger picture. In the book, The Power of Your Plate, Dr. Neil Bernard explains that by having a meatless night once a week, you improve your health. Dr. Bernard says that consider a pasta dinner or baked potato and your favorite vegetables, and you can make a major contribution to the environment because if you realize that it takes 2,500 gallons of water to create one pound of beef, you could save 2,500 gallons of water in one meal. Don, I think we really need to rally around this information. We could improve our health and our environment. So please go to cowspiracy.com and read this section called Take Action. That's C-O-W-S-P-I-R-A-C-Y. Now, Don, I want you to give us your review of Alexis's brilliant film, Let Them Eat Cake. Absolutely. Yes, this is, uh, we're reviewing two films of Alexis. Yes. They're very, they're very different from each other, but that's the talent of a documentary filmmaker. Alexis Kozlowski. The title of the film, of course, is Let Them Eat Cake. I've also seen the film under the title Pastryology, and I want to talk to Alexis about that when we have our interview. Uh, Let Them Eat Cake is one of the most unusual documentary films I've seen. She is in two worlds in her film, the world of uh, poverty, if if not extreme poverty, specifically poverty. the the growing or creating of ingredients for pastries, uh, primarily uh, primarily sugar uh, and also uh, cocoa. And she contrasts that that growing and providing of ingredients with the uh, the production and consumption of pastries. So in the film, we go back and forth between impoverished areas and metropolitan cities and uh, the baking of of absolutely uh, delicious, taunting pastries. And the the experience of being in the impoverished areas is as heartbreaking as the the, uh, making and consuming of the pastries is absolutely seductive. 
and and it, it, you, that contrast that the viewer has to live live with that contrast it it, it puts you in a, in a very unusual place uh, and and the Lexus gives equal attention to these two worlds, so she's not denigrating uh the the pastries because you can find recipes on the film's website of the pastries she show, she shows and and also uh for instance, the making of baklava in Turkey, which I believe is where that happens, but Alexis will let us know uh that that segment of of how this one man makes gourmet baklava that was so well done and i i just i I grabbed my buddies I said, "You've got to see this 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 baklava and of course, I did not show them what happens in Africa with children in practically slave labor uh, harvesting cocoa. And it's very dangerous, and they shouldn't be doing this in the first place. And and that would be, I would say, the most heart-wrenching uh, image I saw is the, these children harvesting cocoa in absolutely abject poverty. Uh, there's a... a one of the interview I don't know if they're not an interviewer, interviewee, but one of the people that speaks in the film is Shodo Harada Roshi. And I don't know if I'm pronouncing his name right, but he is a Zen priest and abbot. And Alexis has him speaking at points throughout the film, and he is the voice of sanity, and he is the voice of compassion, and he is the voice whose words you want to be the way the world works. And uh, I was amazed and fascinated by this film, and I, I will be seeing it more times. And it is, again, one of the most unusual films. And I can't wait to talk to Alexis because I have some questions about it. Okay, good. Well, um, uh, next you're going to review Shooting Women. Yes. So uh, Shooting Women, uh, I've, I've learned, is uh, the television version of a film Alexis calls Women Behind the Camera. And recently, Alexis released a two-CD box set of that film, uh, Women Behind the Camera, and that's what I saw. Uh, Alexis is telling the history of women coming into the world of filmmaking as camera people and, and directors of uh, cinematography. And and it is uh, a harrowing experience for a woman. And she talks about uh, she talks about the, the barriers they had to face. And these barriers include unions and trade organizations, and of course individuals, decision makers, male decision makers. And and she interviews uh, uh, camera women around the world. And this is not an American issue. This is a global issue. This is a human issue. And after seeing the film, I felt like I saw something more than than uh, women uh, women uh, struggling to get into a, a, a male-dominated field. I felt like I was introduced to the world of the uh, oppression and, and subjugation of women in society. In other words, I feel like like what Alexis has done. She's created a film whose message transcends its subject. And at the same time, the, the stories that these women go through to, to become camera women is, is incredible. And one of the, I, I, I have to confess, there is one particular story that, that stuck, and that is a woman talking about working on, on set with the making of pumping iron, pumping iron with Arnold Schwarzenegger, his first American film. <laughs> and uh, he was constantly groping her and, and, and harassing her in various ways, and there was no out for her. She, she would either get herself in trouble if she complained uh, or she'd have to just suffer it, and she suffered it. And, and the way she presented herself, it, it, was, it was heartbreaking to see what she had to go through. And, and, if, and if that happened today, whoever was doing that to her would be in jail. It's quite true, quite true. Wasn't that a fantastic film, Don? Absolutely. And I just want to say, if you want to see this film, do what you can to see the two-CD set. 
excuse, excuse me, DVD set, because the information is too important to, to not see. No, and the edit is very well done. It's such an important film because it's historical. Uh, things have changed, yes, but I don't know how much they have changed. I don't think that the percentage is still anywhere near where it should be with women cameramen. <laughs> and that's what we were all trained was There was only one word. It was called cameraman. And that was because it was a father-to-son ruled uh, uh, union. And uh, so I know that Brianne, her first uh, story about going into the union to try to get into uh, the cameraman's union and the guy saying, over my dead body, that's when you'll get in. And she said, okay. And she waited until he died. And then she marched right back into the new president, gave him the pitch, gave him her resume and her offer for a job. Because always this catch-22, you see. You had to have the talent, but you couldn't get the, uh, the experience, rather. You had to have the experience, but you couldn't get the experience because you couldn't get a job unless you were in the union. So that's how they really kept people out. Well, she had the experience. She had an offer for a job, and she had everything that he needed. And the new president said, uh, well, we'll think about it. So he was a bit nicer. And he put his her resume in his drawer, and that was it. Of course, he was going to just stonewall her, but eventually got a call from the network looking for a woman shooter for breast cancer a series that was being done, and and they said, "Do you have a woman camera person?" And he said, "Of course we do." <laughs> and that's how the first woman got on television to do camera work, which was a brilliant move. She broke a lot of barriers for us. Brianne Murphy. Yes, I, I, I want to also mention Carol that. Uh, the film is available in French, German, or Spanish subtitles. You, your choice. Great. And, Great. and, and also, uh, there's a book called Shooting Woman Behind the Camera Around the World, which Alexis co-wrote. Well, give us the website so people could find it. The website is, uh, pish, uh, the one website I found is pastryology.com. That's P-A-S-T. R-I-O-L-O-G-Y, pastryology.com. And and any other websites, of course, Alexis will also give us. Okay, good. Well, why don't you uh, introduce Alexis, and let's get uh, on with your questions for her. Okay, well, Alexis Kraslowski is a cinematographer and a filmmaker, and... She's quite accomplished. She she's, has a long, fruitful career, and she's uh, obviously made the two films we just talked about. And I am very excited to have a chance to ask her some questions. Well, Don and Carol, I'm, I'm really very thrilled and honored to be in the company of such films as Connected and Cowspiracy. Your reviews are so interesting for those films. I'm going to rush right out and try to get a chance to see them. And I'm happy to answer any questions you have today about uh, Love to Meet Cake uh, and Women Behind the Camera. So thanks for having me on your show. Okay. Well, yes. Yes, we're we're, we're honored. Carol, you want to ask your questions? Yes. Uh, Lexis, how did you choose the cinematographers to be interviewed in your film? Well, I think I was very inspired by Brianne Murphy. Um she was like the patron saint of all of us camera women who were in a group called Behind the Lens, an Association of Professional Camera Women. And this was a group of women who had persevered against enormous odds in an, in an extremely male-dominated industry where even today the numbers of, of camera women shooting the top 250 top-grossing films 
is only between 2 and 5%. It's even worse than the women directors who are now getting the ACLU behind them to fight that kind of discrimination. So Brian Murphy was such a positive role model. She had a sense of humor. She had a great sense of organizing. And she and Estelle Kirsch, Kristen Grover, and a few other camera women got together, first just to support each other and to try to get jobs on the Olympics that were coming to Los Angeles. And they had such amazing stories that I thought, wow, these stories have got to be told. Um, and uh, and, and so I, I chose camera women whom I first met through Behind the Lens, this Association of Professional Camera Women, and, uh, and interviewed them. And then through the grapevine, because things started to expand, we even got members of the group from as far away as Sweden that I'd hear about a camera woman in New Zealand uh, through the editor of my first book, Women Behind the Camera, who, um, Harry Margolis, who actually is the, the co-author of the book that we just finished that just came out last week called Shooting Women Behind the Camera Around the World. Uh, along with our co-author Julia Stein in L.A. and and uh, Harriet Margolis uh, was living in New Zealand and she knew Mary Gunn. Mary Gunn happened to go to an international um, uh, women in film summit that was being held in the Los Angeles area one year, and there was Michelle Crenshaw, who's a fantastic Hollywood camera operator. So I said, well, Michelle, can you interview Mary? And Mary, can you interview Michelle? And and one thing led to another. So a lot of it was through uh, through the grapevine. Well, you did a fabulous job. You really picked some engaging, brilliant uh, women who had a lot to contribute uh, to this historical documentary. But I would think that choosing the cinematographers to shoot cinematographers was another hard decision. It was a very hard uh, choice in many cases because when you say that uh, you know brilliant cinematographers, I feel guilty. There are some very talented camera women, such as Linda Brown, who heads the cinematography program at USC now. Uh, Jessica Lopez, who is uh, a, a really um, uh, incredibly successful up-and-coming younger camera woman who's part of the group Camera Women Los Angeles. Uh, they've got this great Facebook page, and they've got hundreds of members already. And so some of the camera women who uh, were not included, um, sometimes it was because we had to do, once we decided we're doing a global project, we had to strike a certain balance. And so even though camera women flock to Hollywood from all over the world, uh, we had to be selective in order to make sure that we were including camera women in Asia, in South America, in Africa. And that meant that the numbers of camera women who are working in Los Angeles are very serious and very talented, very hardworking, uh, had to be limited to strike a balance globally. Absolutely. Well, you did great. Um, and I believe that you had help from international producers to keep your budget down. So how did you find international producers? Well, I was really lucky because I, I uh, you know, I'm a professor teaching film also, and I have a chapter about writing documentary films in a book by um, Michael Tobias called The Art of Documentary. And they had, um, and he had, a, his publisher uh, gave a really nice party in Los Angeles when his book came out. And there I met uh, a young filmmaker named Vanessa Smith. And Vanessa Smith, I've written a chapter on filming in Tibet. She, she's American, uh, but had lived uh, in in India, and uh, was uh, very active working in other parts of the of the world. Uh, I that was just at the point where where uh, I was, you know, getting getting going with this project, and uh, I it was really uh, without Vanessa, I don't think we would have become such an international, global type of a documentary project. So Vanessa Smith uh, became our executive producer, our associate producer, our unit producer, our unit director, our interviewer of camera women in the UK uh, and elsewhere. And uh, she did a fabulous job. And, without, and I'm very, I'm internally grateful to Vanessa for uh, for having um, uh, produ- produced the film with me. Oh, absolutely. Well, she's in my intentional filmmaking class, and I think often 
who's teaching who here? She is such a brilliant talent. What a, what a gift that was to be connected with her. And I have to thank you personally for creating this film because this will be uh, on the shelf for 20 or 30 years, long after you and I are both gone. People will be looking at this saying, can you believe what they went through? Don't you think? I I think so. I mean, uh, the 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 film is a lot bigger than me or you in some ways, Carol. I mean, we went we got footage of um, Chinese the first Chinese cameraman um, who had actually traveled around uh, the People's Republic of China in 1949 with Mao Zedong, and uh, I mean that's amazing footage. And there are, are many historical uh, aspects to the film. Remember Marina Golovskaya, who is the Soviet, the former Soviet Union's uh, most important documentary filmmaker. Um, she was filming the the um, some of the some of the the key uh, historical uh, events of Russia, crying behind the camera while people were uh, trying to attack her. So, I mean. We we do have um, some historical value in this film, and it, it really surprised me that just I mean just two weeks ago I'm still getting over jet lag. I mean the film was showing at a at a cinematographer's festival in the Czech Republic, so the film doesn't seem to be dying out anytime soon. No, it's too good for that. It'll be around a long time. It is a, a great important asset for all of us. Well, so John, you. I'll leave it up to you now to ask your questions. Oh, yeah. Well, I want to make a comment. I think uh, we cannot understate the, the historical value of, of this film uh, because documentary films cover, cover areas and subjects and people that are not, wouldn't be covered otherwise. And in addition to that, uh, many of them are, are a history that we would not have without the filmmaker having done it. And this is a prime example of that kind of a film. Uh, Alexis, so... I want to ask about Let Them Eat Cake, but I want to, uh, we're talking about women behind the camera. I want to stay with that. So I'm wondering what kind of responses have you had from individuals or institutions or organizations to the film coming out and being successful? To women behind the camera? Uh, I, I, I th- well, first of all, I, I, was, I was really gratified that the International Cinematographers Guild, the union, and we kind of attacked in the film uh, in some ways, for for being um, fairly sexist and discriminatory towards its female members, um, Thomas McKenney of the ICG actually said that it was um, uh, the most worldwide film since Winged Migration. So I guess it was uh, the film came out in 2007, and there really were not that many. Global was not a filmmaker's middle names at that point. So um, uh, we were we were glad that people were recognizing um, the scope of the film. And um, we, I was also really happy. By the way, that's my cat meowing in the background. I, I hope you, I hope, uh, <laughs> I hope you have a sense of humor. Uh, so, but um, we also found that that uh, professors found the film useful in, in mass communication courses and women's studies courses um, and journalism courses. It, it wasn't limited to film production, but it certainly is a film that we intended to make to empower younger women who might want to uh, fill, uh, follow their passion of being behind the camera as camera women. And uh, so what is what is next in your career project-wise? I, I know that uh, uh, Carol is interested in that, too. What's next? Do we already... What's, what, what am I going to do next? Yes, yes, yes. Well, I think that um, at the moment I, I have my hands a little full um, with the book launch for the the book that's come out of uh, you know, going a little further with Women Behind the Camera because when we made that film, we started to hear about camera women in Indonesia, South Africa, many other countries, and that's where Harriet Margolis and me and Julia Stein kind of, you know, put together this, this this book that goes a little further into the issues, and we're really trying to be part of that battle, uh, fighting for gender equity behind the camera. But at the same time, the fact that it's a global book, interviewing over 90 uh, uh, camera women all over the world, um, the fact that it's global is something that has become kind of my pa- even more of a passion rather than less so. And... Uh, 
so now I'm under contract uh, to uh, to write a book uh, about screenplay adaptation, and that book is also going to be global in scope and and uh, hopefully um, uh, alerting people to some of the really fantastic um, uh, issues and and uh, screenwriting of women and minorities as well. Screenplay adaptations, adaptations of. Uh, uh, like screenplay and teleplay adaptation. Of, of any material or specifically? Uh, yeah, when someone go, t- t- decides, well, I read this really uh, fantastic graphic novel, oh, it would I make see. a great movie, uh, then uh, then that's an adaptation. Or if someone sees a, an amazing play in New York or, or L.A. Uh, or or Paris or, or Japan or Hong Kong, anywhere, then... Um, uh, that's a, that can be an adaptation if a movie's made out of it, and, and similarly, if if there's a, a great movie that then becomes a Broadway play or becomes a a, a, a TV series um, or, or a webisode, whatever. I mean, adaptations can go in in many different directions. So that's that's going to be the next project. Yes, and I I see many documentaries. If I was a mogul, I would green light them for narratives. Uh, so uh, that's another source of. Uh, of writing. Uh, can we move to Let Them Eat Cake? Okay, sure. Okay. Well, is there anything else you wanted to say about women behind the camera? I don't want to cut that short. Well, I mean, I, 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 there are many things that we can say about um, women beca- uh, behind the camera. Um, I, I, I think that, you know, in the 1960s, um, that was a time. There was a time when a when an art director in Paris uh, threatened to throw me out of a open uh, a window of a skyscraper in Paris if I didn't give him sex. So I mean, that was my uh, entree into um, trying to get work in the film industry. Many, and many of those problems of sexual harassment, sex discrimination, have not gone away. It's just that women are up in arms and really uh, vocal and, and battling them. There are at least a, a dozen uh, Facebook groups um, vociferously putting out word, um, uh, and, and the EEOC is in town now trying, uh, interviewing the, the uh, women directors um, whom, who have been discriminated against and, and um who have uh, given uh, their statements to the ACLU. Um, so people are doing things about this now, and I, I was hoping that women behind the camera would be, and I think it has been, uh, part and parcel of that um, call to arms and, and um, um, something that would be an eye-opener and, and, and give people the awareness and courage they would need to uh, to go into the field and fight the battles. Uh, I totally agree. The, the, the film is the, to, the film is very inspiring to ac- action. Uh, well, thank you. Oh, certainly. Uh, let them eat cake. I'll ask what for me is the most obvious question: What drew you to the subject, and and what drew you to the the uh, the approach of alternating scenes? I, I think it was implicit from the very start. Um, we started making this film during the food crisis of 2008 in Dhaka, Bangladesh. And, and that was a time when the price of the country's basic staple, which was rice, was so inflated that even middle-class people were having a really hard time just being able to eat three meals a day. And the quality of, of rice that the poor were eating uh, was something that ordinarily would have been fed only to cattle. And, and that was at the same time the U.S. had just been overtaken by a cupcake craze. Uh, I was at the Dhaka International Film Festival celebrating um, the uh, w- women behind the camera, which had shown in uh, 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 around a dozen uh, festivals all around the world. And in Dhaka, I met uh, uh, a wonderful uh, young filmmaker from Calcutta, India, Sanjay Ghosh, and we sat there saying, you know, wow, uh, these embassy parties are really great, the food's really lavish, but, you know, 10,000 people just lost their homes in Bangladesh, and, and, and isn't there something we can do about it? And, and, and at the same time, I, I, something jumped and clicked in my mind where I thought I, I, that I had talked to filmmakers in other festivals in other parts of the world, and we kept saying, wow, wow, you know, I like your film, I like your film. 
and back and forth and back and forth. We should work together. So Sandra and I decided, well, let's make a film uh, about pastry that compares the extremes of the incredible, lavish delicacies that the wealthy can eat to the people who, in some cases, don't have anything to eat or are struggling uh, to uh, to have enough food for their children by working on uh, sugar plantations in India, um, something which Sanjay, as co-producer, then uh, hired Ajit Nag, a wonderful um, and, uh, filmmaker from uh, the southern part of India, to film in Telangana, where the suicide rate of farmers has been astronomical. So to have these uh, extremes balanced, I uh, went to Okayama, Japan, and interviewed an abbot, Shoto Harada Roshi, whom I believe you mentioned earlier in the, in the program. Thank you. Uh, and so this is a Zen Buddhist abbot uh, who lives in Sogenji Monastery in Okayama. And he said that if you don't have balance between those who have too much to eat and those who don't have enough to eat, you will not be able to achieve world peace. So that, to me, became the fulcrum uh, and the central message of the film. It's world a, peace is the underlying central message. Yes, and it's a very powerful film. I have, I, I have to ask you about this footage from Africa of children harvesting cocoa, or do you pronounce it cacao? Uh, cacao, if you're French, or cocoa, is, it's probably fine if, if you're American. Uh, the way this footage came into being is that I have a third co-producer in addition to Sanjay Ghosh from India. I worked with uh, Dr. Hamadou Suma, uh, who is a colleague of mine at uh, California State University, Northridge. We're both in the Department of Cinema and Television there, and he teaches uh, media studies. And uh, Hamadou Suma is originally from West Africa and has spent many years in France as well. And he uh, knew one of his friends was Moussa Diakite, who is one of the foremost award-winning uh, documentary filmmakers of West Africa. And I thought it would be much better, instead of me as a first-world woman living in Los Angeles, to pop over to West Africa and suddenly call the shots and... and uh, assume all the poor, starving children of West Africa, you know, coming in with my own cultural and sociological biases. I thought it would be much better for Musa Diakite uh, to travel to the rural part of of uh, Guinea, which he did. And Zerikore, if I pronounce it correctly, is uh, one of the sections of Africa that has been hardest hit by the Ebola crisis. So every time I see the film, I, I kind of have tears coming in my eyes, worrying and wondering what's happened to the children who are in that section of the film. But lo and behold, it turned out that those children, even though um, you, you said in your review, you know, they, they, they look uh, so impoverished, in fact, they are very, um, the, the, uh, the, the journalist uh, from West Africa, whom we interviewed about their situation economically and sociologically, he said that these are family-owned plantations. The children fight for the privilege of being able to pick the cocoa pods on their days off from school, and the money they make from selling the cocoa enables them to pay for their school uniforms and their books and makes their education possible. And so it's actually a win-win situation. They're going to inherit that plantation when they're older. And so this was like completely mind-blowing for me because I really came in with a, a very different set of assumptions. So it was quite a learning process making this film, learning about other cultures, and also as a director, learning a new way of filmmaking, which is to work transnationally and to listen rather than dictate what the film is going to be about and what the, what the issues are going to be and how to put it together. I, as a helicopter parent, I wanted to jump to the screen and rescue their kids Partly from the dangers that they were that they were climbing trees. It's amazing that the danger, you know, danger is an amazing thing in this film. And it turns out that there, you know, Zurichare has been maybe dangerous in terms of poverty, but it also has been extremely dangerous in terms of Ebola, and Sarcel uh, also the 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 uh, interview with Isabel Cohen. Um, who is making a special um, Rosh Hashanah 
uh, Jewish New Year cake in Paris, France. Her apartment is part of Sarcelle, which was hard hit by uh, rioting in Paris. As uh, We try to include all five major world religions in our film uh, because, again, the idea of, of having peace by balancing those who have too much to eat with those who don't have enough to eat, um, we we try to at the same time honor the cultural traditions that are behind um, many kinds of pastries around the world. And Gaziantep, where we filmed the baklava, even though it's a totally peaceful scene, and it's and and really that baklava is the most delicious thing I ate during all six years of production, and that's 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 a a real statement insofar as I gained 25 pounds. Um, making a film about pastry. But that baklava, I mean, by far was the most delicious thing on the planet. Uh, but Gaziantep is where the Syrian refugees uh, uh, have been having all kinds of problems, and there's been a, a tre- tremendous amount of fighting, and, and uh, it, it's, a, it's an area of real crisis. Um, so we happened to be there at a, peace, at a peaceful time. In fact, it was so peaceful that the taxi cab driver was one of the nicest people I ever met anywhere in this uh, Turkish ta- taxi cab driver. When when I uh, left the 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 the, bak- uh, the big box of baklava that I was trying to bring back to my friends in California, in his cab by mistake, he actually drove around and found me and returned it. I mean that was that was really nice. That you know that I, I, I mean I learned making this film. You you can't have assumptions about people and cultures. I mean people are people and there are wonderful people all over the world. Wow, well, I think I'd like to make a narrative about your life and what you've been through. Quite right. Uh, well, uh, th- thank you. Uh, I'm looking forward to seeing whatever you make next. Well, thank you very much. I, I look forward to making more films. I'm in the Writers Guild now, and I'm probably more focused on uh, writing and producing uh, narrative films and documentaries. But on the other hand, after I made Women Behind the Camera, I said, no more documentaries, and then I made Let Them Eat Cake. So, uh, <laughs> you know, I, I, I think it's in my blood. I've been making documentaries for, for, for uh, many decades now, and, I, and uh, it's, it, it is one of the things that I, that I love, and I also enjoyed hearing about uh, Cowspiracy and other documentaries and meeting other documentary filmmakers. And I, I very much uh, thank you for having uh, given me this opportunity to talk to you. Well, tell us how people can find you, your website, email, whatever you'd like to share. Well, Let Them Eat Cake, I mean, uh, there's actually a website where you can see the film on VOD or DVD, and that's called LetThemEatCakeFilm.com. And for women behind the camera, same thing, you can see it on VOD, or you can order the DVD, um, and that's WomenBehindTheCamera.com. And either one of those websites, I believe, can link you to my own website, which is alexiskraslovsky.com. Hard to spell, um, if you want, I'll spell it. But I think uh, it's probably good enough to see the spelling on the on one of those two film websites, because I have a lot of other films that I've made as well, as in addition to the books that I've written in the past and the book that I'm that has just come out, uh, co-authored with Harriet Margolis and Julia Stein and the book that I'm now writing uh, on adaptation. So you'll be able to see that on my website. So there's a bunch of different websites, and uh, I look forward to I, – I, I answer whatever – when people contact me through the websites, I always answer them. So, How wonderful. Thank you so much for sharing your time and knowledge and information, and we all thank you for the work you're doing. Thank you, Carol. Okay. Lots of love to you. Okay, thank you, Claire. Thank you, Don. Well, thank you, too. Okay, bye for now. Bye. All right, be well, everyone. Bye. Now, in its second edition, Carol Dean's popular book, The Art of Film Funding, has 12 new chapters to cover all areas of film financing and how to avoid expensive pitfalls. Learn how to start with an idea and end with a trailer. How to make an ask for money. Create your story structure and your trailer. Legal advice, fair use, successful crowdfunding, how to ask for music rights, and what insurance you can't shoot without. Available on Amazon under Carol Dean and at FromTheHeartProductions.com.
I want to remind our listeners that David Raiklin is a brilliant and talented award-winning musician who scores films and can compose music for a trio or for a full orchestra. David is a very good friend to the independent filmmaker and comes highly recommended by From the Heart Productions. If you need music to help tell your story, please contact him at davidraiklin.com. That's David, R-A-I-K-L-E-N.com. And Carol and I want to thank you for tuning in to The Art of Film Funding. Please visit our website at fromtheheartproductions.com. You can also find us on Facebook and Twitter. Good luck with your films, everyone.